We're in Ephesians chapter 4 as we're going through the Bible on Wednesday nights. So please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, we're amazed at your love for us. It's it's unending, and we ask as we open up your word tonight that we would be rooted and grounded in your love, that we'd be strengthened in our inner man, that we would come to understand what it means to walk together in unity, to fight for that unity, to keep the unity of the Spirit, also that you have given spiritual gifts to us. Father, I pray that your strength would be made perfect in my weakness and Lord, that you would use your word to encourage and change our character and make us more like you. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. For each one of my four kids, it's always been an exciting moment when they learn to walk. I think it's a, it's a moment that dads anticipate. And a couple of my kids did the whole, you know, hold the fingers for quite a while where they're walking on your fingers. And then eventually they just take off, right? And then the other two weren't interested in holding the fingers. They were just ready to go. And they just, they just went right for it. With our oldest daughter, Hannah, when she uh, learned to walk, we were watching a basketball game and we were taking it in and it was halftime. It was uh, my cousin's uh, basketball game. And, and all of a sudden she saw a ball across the gym and that motivated her for the first time to, to walk across the gym. She'd done like three or four steps and then she went all the way across and it's like frozen in my mind. So I was like, yeah, this is incredible. You know, this is, this is awesome. And when we come to the book of Ephesians, there's three words that outline the book of Ephesians. And the first is to sit, that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The, the grace of God has given us that position in Christ. If you've been studying with us, we've really taken time to let that marinate and sink in that God in his grace has caused us to be seated in the heavens of Christ. As we get to chapter 4, it's a new section. It goes from being theological to practical. So what we believe, how it affects the way that we behave, the same grace of God, but being used in our lives to cause us to walk. And that's the challenge that we have before us tonight, is to walk worthy. And there comes a point in our Christian life where we take the truths that we've been learning and we apply them to our hearts and our lives. Now, we never grow beyond that, amen? We never grow beyond that point of being challenged to walk more like Christ. I will find some good challenges for us tonight in the Word, and they'll continue to be that way until we go home to be with the Lord. And then chapter 6, the last word is stand. That's when we get to the spiritual warfare and the aspect of putting on the armor of God and standing in the midst of adversity and and attack. But tonight we're going to be looking at being able to walk in the things that God has called us to. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. So the word therefore is always insightful. It always brings us back to going, what are these truths that we're responding to? The first three chapters. In light of that, Paul says, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, now I'm beseeching you to walk worthy of your calling. He reminds us it's the second time in this book that he says that he's the prisoner of the Lord. He's not the prisoner to his circumstances, but he's prisoner to Jesus Christ. He understands that God's in control, that God has him right where he wants him to be. Maybe that resonates with you tonight. You're in a time of suffering, a time of difficulty, saying, man, I really want this to go away. I really want the breakthrough to happen. And we're not in that place 
where it's just happen chance. It's exactly where God wants us to be. And Paul owns that. And he takes advantage of the opportunities that he does have. And that's to pick up a pen, get out a paper, and write to the church of Ephesus. He could have easily wallowed in sorrow, but instead he's using that opportunity to minister. And he uses this word, I besiege you. You know, what does that mean? He's pleading with us. He's saying, okay, now, now it's time, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to walk worthy of your calling, to live out what God has worked in. The word walk in the Bible, it talks about lifestyle. It's really referring to the way we live as Christians. That's what the word walk uh, describes for us. And it's to be in a manner that's worthy of the one who's called us. Well, what has he called us? He's called us sons. He's called us daughters. He's called us justified. He's robed us in Christ's righteousness. And so now we want to walk in a way that reflects that in honoring the Lord. Similar to maybe a soldier who is in uniform, who's, who's walking worthy of that uniform, or police officers that, that's reflecting that uniform. How much more so that we've been part of the family of God. Now, this is where I think it's a challenge that always continues in our lives. And maybe this is your first time reading this verse, and you're like, oh, that's a high calling that God is asking of us, that our lives would reflect Jesus Christ. Or maybe this is the hundredth time, or more times than you can count, that you've meditated on Ephesians 4, verse 1. It's still challenging, isn't it? There's so many areas of my life that don't live up to this calling, where God's wanting me to grow in, and he's wanting to reform and, and transform and change my character to be more like Christ. And in these chapters, four and five, we'll see these divisions where Paul really lays it out for us of these different areas that God is calling us to walk. It gets really practical. It deals with the area of marriage. It deals with the area of raising kids. It deals with the areas of employer, employee. All aspect of our lives is going to be defined in these next uh, few chapters. But remember that this is the grace of God living through us. This is broken in weakness. God, I know my own flesh. I know my own failures. This is your unconditional love being, being lived through me. A lot of times, there's a lot of emphasis on the second half of the book of Ephesians without understanding the first half of the book of Ephesians. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And it's a response to who you are in Christ. God could have switched the order, couldn't he? He could have said, if you do all these things and you do them right, then you're in Christ. But that's not the truth of it. If you receive Christ through faith, you're in Christ. And it's that position. You're as justified as you're ever going to be. And now, out of that position of acceptance and grace, we're responding to it and we're wanting to walk worthy of the calling that God has given us. The first area that we look at is unity. It's really living out the calling with brothers and sisters in Christ. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, and love. This is the attitudes and the attributes of our calling. That we would have lowliness or humility. Grace brings us to a place of humility. It brings us to a place of lowliness. We have to get low before God before we can receive his grace and help in our lives. So we're going through our Christian life remembering our sin, celebrating our forgiveness, and we're walking in humility. And if we can have this attitude towards ourselves, like I know that I'm broken, I know that my life needs the grace of God continually, 
then it's sure going to help us in relationship with other believers. It's really going to help us in being able to keep that, that unity. The unity and the harmony gets destroyed when we walk in pride, the opposite of humility. God, I've got this under control. I have this. Apply these to your relationships, lowliness, and then gentleness. Now, gentleness is not always easy, is it? It's difficult. These are not attributes that were lift up in the Greek culture or our culture as well. You may think of gentleness as being weakness, so I'm not going to be able to get anything done. But Jesus, he described himself as being lowly and gentle in heart. I think Jesus was tough, don't you? There's an aspect to Christ that I wouldn't want to mess with. When it was time to clear out the temple, he was able to do it. In fact, he even used a whip and he turned over the tables. He knew how to hold a firm line when it was time, in truth. But I believe he always did it in gentleness. And that's what made him God. That's what makes him so wonderful that he could take action when he needs to, but yet remain gentle. It's one thing if you don't have to deal with somebody. You know, maybe someone's driving out of control on the road. And, and you know what? You can just let it go. You don't, have to, you don't have to deal with them. It's not your responsibility. You just stay out of their, their way. But it's a whole other thing to be with a police officer that has to hold that person accountable and say that person then loses their temper. It's a lot harder to be gentle in that situation where now I have to engage with it. There's something that now is coming my way that I've got to respond and to respond appropriately. I think this ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It comes through walking with Christ. It's not what I do naturally. It's probably not what you do naturally. And to be able to approach things with a measure of gentleness. You know, think about how far that goes in relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Relationships inside of the family, with husbands and wives, and with with our children to say, God, would you make me more gentle? It's the attitude and the the attribute. Long-suffering. Long-suffering with one another. Guess what long-suffering means? To suffer long. Some Bible translations, they they translate it as being patient. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. It's long-tempered. I think sometimes that there's a, a misconception on relationships with one another as believers and even inside of our, our own families. There's a great book called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thompson, and he writes that God's designed marriage to make us holy, not to make us happy. That's God's intent, is that he brings us into marriage. He allows us to have children because he knows that that's going to refine our character in a way that we couldn't otherwise. And so he's saying, Eric, I want to make you holy, so I'm going to allow you to, to enter into this. And I think we would all agree that marriage and family is, is absolutely wonderful. And so the, here's the misconception. A lot of people think, well, my marriage isn't easy, so I must have married the wrong person. Because I thought that Christian marriage was supposed to be bliss. So all of a sudden, it's difficult. We've got to work at it. And you're thinking, man, I married the wrong person. No, you married the exact right person. In fact, it was God's design to chisel off some things in your character that could ever, otherwise not been done. With children, I'm sure God in his love is engineering our children uniquely to work in areas of our character to cause us to be more gentle, to cause us to be more humble. You know, if you're lacking in humility, just have children. Amen? You know, it's like, I was a great parent before I had any. You know, it's, you, you, you just... You just realize over time, man, God, you're, you're humbling me. 
you're humbling. And, and we look at our, our marriage, you look at your kids, and you go, well, it's hard, so there must be something wrong with us. No, there's not something wrong with you. It's what God is giving to you to produce long-suffering. Did you know that long-suffering isn't produced through reading books? You know, long-suffering's not necessarily produced in the comforts of the sanctuary as we worship and we read the Word. It's where we get the concepts, Tonight we're getting the concept of the importance of of long-suffering, but where it gets developed is in difficult situations, close proximity. Maybe you've got a boss or a co-worker or a neighbor that's making your life, life difficult, and you might be saying, this is the wrong job for me. And God might be saying, this is the perfect job for you. This is exactly where I want you to be to produce in you that attitude of long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love. You can almost get the wrong idea of bearing with one another. This almost sounds like, well, I've got to tolerate you or just put up with you and call it love. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying, I'm willing to bear your burden. I'm willing to deal with your mess ups. I'm willing to deal with your sin. I'm not going to give up on you in the midst of, of those moments. And when we walk in these attitudes and we walk in these attributes, then it makes verse 3 possible endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So first we come to this word unity. We're to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God has given it to us. It already exists. We're united in the Spirit as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the bond of peace through the Prince of Peace. Our job is to keep it. Our job is to be a steward of it. Jesus prayed for unity in John 17. He said, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me. That's a tremendous amount of unity. He says the unity but that's between the Father and the Son, that's the unity that I desire between believers. Psalms 133 says how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. For those that are God's people to be united together in unity. But Satan doesn't like unity, does he? He knows the power of of unity. He knows what happens when a house is divided, when believers are fighting with one another. It keeps us from being effective in God's work. Satan knows that a house divided against itself cannot stand. So he's always going to be in that place where he's trying to destroy this unity. And when we see Satan at work and we see our own flesh at work, we've got to go back to verse 2. It's time to apply some humility to the situation. Time to provide some long-suffering to the situation, some gentleness and some kindness, some grace that God has extended. I think the big idea for Paul at this part of the book of Ephesians is he knows that Jew and Gentile believers are having a really hard time getting along. So he's saying, hey, look, this is how God has accepted you in Christ. Now you're the habitation of God. You're together the, the family of God. And you've got to walk worthy of this calling. You've got to work hard to be able to get along with, with other believers. You've got to keep this place of unity. A guy named Thomas Rayner, he writes blogs. A lot of the blogs are directed towards the body of Christ. He came up with these 25 different things that church congregations have fought over. And he did the research. So I want to share them with you. And he didn't necessarily put them in priority. But he says, the first one was argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. So, 
I guess that became quite a controversy. Another was to fight over whether or not to build a church playground or to use the land for a cemetery. I'm dying to know the resolution of that one. A deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. The church could have sold tickets to raise some money. A church dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. That seems like an easy yes in my mind. A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. It was a timely argument. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. They had an official cabinet meeting of the church leadership. A fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Number eight, a petition to have all church staff clean shaven. Verse nine, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on or off during the service. A big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was uh, 10, 10 cents was missing. It was 10 cents off. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. So there was a fight over that. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. Uh, Arguments over what type of green beans that the church should serve. This is an easy one to solve. They shouldn't serve green beans at all. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Perhaps they started a new church, the Right Blend Fellowship. (laughs) Fifteen, a major conflict when the youth... uh, uh, when the youth department borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. 16, an argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Maybe if they counterbalanced it with some angel food cake. <laughs> argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. 18, a, discourage, uh, a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. I get it. The concept of luck contradicts the theology of the sovereignty of God. This issue is very serious. Good luck trying to resolve it. (laughs) A church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. It looked too much like alcohol. (laughs) An argument in church, number 20, who had access to the the copy machine. Some churches, church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. Number 22, an argument over whether or not to have gluten-free communion bread or not. So we actually do have gluten-free communion if you are allergic because we know that's serious for, for some. It's at the information center. So now you know if you... And verse or 23, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since they're the black color is of the devil. A fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. That would be brutal. 
wouldn't it? An argument, number 25, whether the fake dusty plant should be removed from the podium. These things are true as he listed these 25 things out, and they're, they're kind of heartbreaking, aren't they, to think about the things that divide the, the body of Christ. But it does bring to mind how sometimes petty disagreement comes in. Maybe it's in your family. It's with a friendship. It, it is inside of the body of Christ. Can't you just hear Satan laughing, going, oh, I got them fighting over this. I got them fighting over that. Look, they're, they're miscommunicating over this. And so those are those moments that we stop and say, God, I want to be part of the solution. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to live in peace inside of the body of Christ. In verse 4, it says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. So if you're taking notes tonight when it comes to unity, number one is that we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Look at all that we share. We're one body in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us to where we're not an individual, but we're joined together as the body of Christ. So when I'm not getting along with another believer, I'm actually fighting against the body of Christ. I'm fighting against my own body. Could you imagine, you know, if, if my right fist wasn't getting along with my face? It's kind of counterproductive, isn't it? It's not going to get along very well. So, so we're one body in the Spirit. And then we have one hope of our calling. So we're all headed the same place. We're all headed to heaven. That's the hope of our calling. We're going to be together for all of eternity. You've probably heard it said, if we're going to be together for all of eternity, we should probably work out our differences now, shouldn't we? We have one calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, this unity is not something that extends outside of Jesus Christ. It's a unity inside of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a unity inside of the scriptures. It's not linking us to, to false teaching, but it's those who are in Christ, believing in Christ, following Christ, and we have the, the same Savior, one Lord, and one faith. He's the way, the truth, and the life. One baptism in the name of Christ. And then one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So we have the same Father. My brother and I have got an older brother and a younger sister. And my older brother, man, we're completely different. He's a, a year and 10 months older than me. He's got blonde hair and blue eyes. He's got big shoulders. And our gifts and our personalities are, are just radically opposed to one another. I happen to be the good-looking one. But... <laughs> But you know what? We've got the same dad. We've got the same, same mom. And you often look and you go, how can two different people be from the same, same parents? But then we also have things that we're, we're symbol, similar in. But we're flesh and blood. We're, we're brothers. And we're connected with each other. And, and you see that a lot with your, their, your own children. They're very different, but they come from the same two parents. And we have the same father. Did you notice in verses 4, 5, and 6 that there was a reference to the Trinity? This unity first was the spirit that makes us one body. And then Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, he's referred to as our Lord throughout scripture, and then our Father. And together, three distinct persons, but yet one God, is above all and through all and in you all. And the Trinity is the perfect unity, the perfect harmony. You'll find an absence of selfishness inside of the Trinity. The Father's always complimenting the Son, the Son's always submitting to the Father. The Holy Spirit's job is to point people 
to the Son. They're not focused upon themselves. Selfishness will destroy harmony. Selfishness will destroy unity in the family, unity inside of the church. And when we come to this place where God is above all and through all and in you all, when we're putting him at the supremacy of our lives, the byproduct of unity will come. At some point in your walk, if you haven't been there already, is there will be a disagreement with believers. And you'll have a choice to make. You can either be part of the solution or you can be part of the difficulty. And hopefully, we land in Romans chapter 12 that says, as depends upon you, as much as depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Can you answer that question? Have I done as much as I can do to be at a place of peace? If the answer is yes, then praise the Lord. If the answer is no, then allow the Holy Spirit to bring application in your hearts and lives. So it goes from unity to diversity in verse 7. But each one of us, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now he's talking specifically about spiritual gifts. So in God's grace, he provided salvation, but he also gave us gifts. In verse 8, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. This is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So this is prior to Christ's ascension. It says here very specifically that before he ascended, he first descended to the lower parts of the earth for two reasons. To set the captivity captive, to set them free, to lead them free, and to give gifts to men. So then this brings a lot of question. Where exactly did Christ go when his death and burial prior to his resurrection and his ascension? One of the things that we come to understand is in Luke 16 with a beggar named Lazarus. And it's described as paradise or Abraham's bosom. And those that trusted in Christ before Christ came went to this place of Abraham's bosom. So you're living in the Old Testament. You're looking forward to Messiah. You were put in this place of paradise. But there was also a gulf that that extended across for those that didn't believe in Christ. And that's what we find with this story of, of Lazarus. As the rich man was in the side of torment, and he was saying, couldn't you just send Lazarus across this gulf? And the answer was no. And so many believe that Christ went and he took those Old Testament saints, those Old Testament believers, and then set them free because they couldn't yet be in God's presence because their sin hadn't been atoned for. And out of this verse, there's been some that think that then Christ went to hell, but it doesn't ever say that Christ went to hell. It says he went to the lower parts of the earth to set these captives free. And so for me personally, I think he went to Abraham's bosom, to paradise, and led those captives free. But that's where you get that discussion between did Christ go to hell or did he go to Abraham's bosom? But the point of this section is what? That he did this to give gifts to men. And so he set the captives free and then he gave gifts to to all men. So number two is we're all in this, or number one, we're in all this together. But number two is all have gifts. All have been given gifts by the Lord as part of God's grace. You are uniquely gifted by God with both physical abilities but also spiritual gifts to be used inside of the body of Christ. 
So to walk worthy of how God's called us is one, is being committed to unity. And then the second is to see our gifts being used to serve believers, to edify believers. Now I want to take you to a couple different sections of scripture to look at the spiritual gifts that God has has given to believers. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12. A little bit over to your left, Romans 12. And let's look at verse 6 through verse 8. It says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So some of the spiritual gifts are listed there. So we see unity, but we also see diversity. Not everybody's been given the same gift. And the analogy is the body. We look at our physical body and there's many members. And so God will give unique gifts to unique people so that his body can be the most effective. Now turn also over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look at verse 4 through verse 11. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4 through 11. It says, There are a diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For one is given the word of wisdom. Ever been talking with another believer, really needing God's wisdom, and they share it with you? Many times in a very natural way. It's, it's knowledge that applies to your particular situation. God just gave the word of wisdom through a believer, through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. This is knowing something only through the Holy Spirit showing you. There's no way that you could know it any other way. And Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. She says, why don't you go get your husband? Well, I'm not married. You've spoken well. You've got four husbands, and the guy you're with is not your husband at all. That's the word of knowledge. It's the only way that that could be known is, is God giving and God granting, and the Holy Spirit will do that at times. To another faith by the same Spirit. See somebody launch out in a step of faith and and God gifted them to be able to, to do that. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Praying for someone and God choosing to, to heal them and give them the gift of healing. Now, I don't think that anyone has the, the gift of healing like the gift of teaching. You know, th- this is referring to God giving the gift of healing to the person that is receiving it. Not necessarily like, let me pray for you. I have the gift of healing. Every time I pray for someone, they get healed. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discerning of spirits. Some have been gifted to be able to discern when there's the demonic that's taking place. To another, different kinds of tongues, speaking in tongues that we see in the book of Acts. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But to one, the same spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. So not everybody's going to have the same gift. Not everybody's going to speak in tongues. Not everybody's going to have the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom. So here's a couple examples of the spiritual gifts that that are listed. And we'll see 
some offices that are given in Ephesians 4. So how do you know what your spiritual gift is? Well, first, you have to believe that God gave you one or several. Some of you might be reading this tonight and going, well, I'm not gifted. God hasn't gifted me for anything. And that's a lie. That's a lie from Satan. You have been given gifts by God to be able to edify the body. The best way that I know how to discover what our spiritual gifts are is to start serving, to start serving, to really care for the body, to care for believers. And as you're ministering to them, you'll find the things that God has called you to and the things that you're, you're gifted at. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, that, that sounds way too simple for me. You know, there has to be some other way to be able to figure this out. And I'm talking about, yeah, maybe in a formal sense of filling out a volunteer application and serving the body here. But even much more than that, of concern for believers as a whole is how do you tend to minister to them? Do you be, are you mercy driven? If believers are having a hard time, do you seem to be that person that gives a listening ear? Then you probably have the gift of mercy. Or do you tend to see what believers need to do and take that next step? Then you probably have the gift of exhortation. You probably don't have the gift of mercy. You're saying, you know what? You've cried long enough. It's time for you to suck it up and to do something about this. Tears aren't going to help. You probably have the gift of exhortation. Maybe you just want to rally around and meet a need. You probably have the gift of helps. Maybe you're really concerned about the financial ramifications of it. You probably have the gift of giving. Maybe you're able to step back and look at the situation and go, you know, I know exactly where you went wrong. Dot, 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 dot. And this is where you need to go for things to get right. Dot, 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 dot. You probably have the gift of teaching. You're able to help people connect the dots, but you're not going to know that until you get involved in people's lives. That's a way that you discover your gift. We are all stewards of the gifts that God has given to us. So here in his grace, he's given us spiritual gifts to be used to build up believers. And one day God's going to come to us and say, hey, what did you do with that gift that I've given to you? That mercy, did you extend it to believers? That gift of helps, did you extend it to, to believers? And hopefully the answer is yes. Yeah, I was concerned with other believers. I realized you gave me a gift and I wanted to build them up. I wanted to see them grow into the fullness of Christ. But you have to also have some courage to realize it's not gonna look like everybody else. It was year 1658 in Italy. This young boy was growing up in a musical town and as the legend goes, he loved music. He wanted to sing But when he would sing, people would laugh and make fun of his squeaky voice. And he pretty quickly realized that that wasn't going to be a good fit for him. He wanted to try to play musical instruments and be in the orchestra, but he practiced and practiced and practiced, and it it was going nowhere. Finally, his teacher told him and said, you know what? I don't think that you're going to be a good musician. So he would just sit around and he would carve, just carve. And one day he was listening to his friends sing and they were singing on the street for money. And here a guy walks by and he puts a gold coin in the hat. Got everybody's attention because that didn't normally happen. He asked, who, who is this? Who is this guy that put the gold coin in? Well, he's so-and-so and he makes violins. And he was well-known in the community for making violins. So the 11-year-old boy, he gets this idea in his mind to go knock on the door of the man who makes violins 
and says, I love to carve. I'm not good at singing. I'm not good at musical instruments, but I love to carve. Can I be your apprentice? The man decided to go ahead and let him do that. And he was his then apprentice, took over the business, and became the most famous for making violins in Italy that are still known to this day. And he found his gift. It wasn't singing. It wasn't playing instruments. It was making instruments. And you've got to find what God has designed you for. And how that happens is taking a risk. It's getting involved in people's lives. Okay, I tried extending mercy. It was a time for mercy. And then I just started exhorting them. My gift is not mercy. I'm probably not the one to go down and do hospital visits. You know, <laughs> I just, I don't come across right, you know. And so you start to learn, okay, this, this is what my gift is. This is what I, I really enjoy. And you say, you know, I don't think I could give sermons, but I really enjoy helping people. I really love seeing someone feel loved as they have the help that they need to get moved or to help them fix a toilet or figure out their electrical in, in, inside of their house. Well, you've got the gift of helps. Go for it. Well, I, I do think I would enjoy teaching, and, but you've got to get involved and start, start serving, and that's how the gifts get exposed. In verse 11, it says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. And so these are specific gifts that God gave, specific offices inside of the church for a specific purpose. Apostle means to be sent out. Prophet is someone who forth tells the word of God, someone with great conviction, someone who through the word of God can speak very accurately into what's happening in culture at that moment, what God's message is for that particular generation. Some evangelists, their heart and gifting is for the lost. Their, their lens is always about seeing people get reached to come to know Christ as their Savior. Pastor, caring, shepherding, guiding the flock, teaching, explaining the Word of God, rightly dividing the truth. This shows us that inside of a church, there's going to be a pastoral team. And I'm thankful for the pastoral team that God has put together at Rocky Mountain Calvary. Because with that, you have a variety of different gifts that are going to bring about the needed leadership for a particular body. And we see these offices given so that the church can be led by God's grace. So these offices are given for verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So number three is all are called. Did you catch this? So it's not just pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles and evangelists that are called, but they're called to equip the body for the work of the ministry. That means we're all called to ministry. So for us tonight, it's all of us owning, I'm part of the body of Christ. Part of me growing into maturity is God has given me gifts to be able to edify other believers. And as we all use our gifts, then it's a healthy body. And God then is, is glorified. It's hard to communicate this because of the culture that we live in. It's like we, we think of somebody who is a missionary and go, oh, they're in ministry. Or someone who works on staff at a church or a pastor, we go, they're, they're in ministry. But we look at our lives and go, oh, I'm not in, in ministry. I'm an accountant, so I'm not in, in ministry. Or I'm a construction worker, or I'm a professor, or I'm a school teacher, or I'm a stay-at-home mom, so, so I'm not in ministry. You know what the word ministry means? It means to serve. It means to be a servant. 
And that's something that God has called us all to. Amen? Can we agree on that? So we go through our days saying, how can I serve the body of Christ? And so I think this is part of maturing and growing and understanding. Because when a lot of times when we first come into a church, we think it's all about us, don't we? We go, does this church meet my needs? Do they have everything that I like? Is the worship just the way that I would like? Is, is, can I receive from the teaching? And do they have something from my high schooler and my three-year-old? And, and we start to do all of these type of things. And our culture tells us, well, I'm just going to consume from church. I'm just going to take everything that, that I need. But a biblical understanding of the body is not one that's self-focused, but one that's outward-focused. And it's more of this question of what do I have to contribute to this body? When we come together and we gather as believers, how can I encourage somebody else? How can I pray for somebody else? How can I share God's word with someone else, exhort someone else? Where where does my gifts need to be used inside of of this body of Christ? Okay, I'm gathering with believers inside of my home, and it's easy to go, well, they're here to meet my need for friendship. But instead to realize, no, I'm here to bless them. And once we get that outward focus of the body of Christ, that's when it really gets exciting. I know for me that serving inside of the body is a huge blessing, and it was very transformational for me. It was a big point of maturity to start serving the body and then instead of expecting to, to be served. And man, my Christian life just exploded. Things really started to change for me. You know, when I started to view the scriptures of going, God's sharing things with me to apply to my life so that I can also share it with others. You know, what believers in my life is God bringing in my life today that I can share the word of God with them? How can I bless them? How can I be an encouragement to them? And again, this might be in a formal capacity where you fill out a volunteer application, but even more so, it's important that we realize it in in our hearts and we just live to be a blessing to others. In verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we continue serving one another until the body of Christ is fully mature, which will lead us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're only going through verse 16, so if you're looking at the clock and going, oh no, we're in trouble. We're only going through verse 16. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So part of maturity is the body's not just here for me, but I'm here to, to serve brothers and sisters in Christ. Another great point of maturity is that you know what sound doctrine is, so that you're not tossed with every false doctrine that blows through the church. And this is really, and really important, something we'll all be tested on. How do you know sound doctrine? How do you know what God's message is? That's what doctrine means. What does God teach? What is his message? Well, is it in the life of Jesus? Is it in the book of Acts and in the epistles? And if the answer is yes, you're going to find yourself with sound doctrine. And if the answer is no... It's not from the Lord, and you need to have the maturity to reject it. Otherwise, you're going to constantly be tossed with these doctrines that come through the church. What are some of them that come inside of the church? That the teaching of hell is in question, isn't it? This idea that God is love, and because he's love, he doesn't send people to hell. And I'm not going to believe in a God that sends people to hell. 
Well, unfortunately, Jesus talked about hell more than he did heaven. It's his teaching, so we can't change it. People choose to go to hell. God confirms their decision and sends people to hell. Another one that's really being questioned inside of the church is God's message on sexuality, isn't it? You know, if you're looking at the news, very current in the news, you know, churches are, are in this place of, of division and fighting and all over what God's message for, for sexuality is. Do you know John the Baptist got killed because he stood for God's message of sexuality? He confronted Herod on his sexual compromise, and Herod ultimately had him killed. God's message on sexuality hasn't always been popular, but it's one that's blowing through the church. And it's saying, you know, well, well, God is love. And so because God is love, he accepts homosexuality and transgender and all these other things. God is love, and because he's love, he made us male and female. And his mission statement is fulfilled when we follow, follow his commands. And so you really have to stop and think, what does the Bible teach, not just what culture is saying? And that's part of maturity. And that's our heart as a pastoral team at RMC, is we want to go through the word of God so you know the word of God for yourself. So you're reading God's word for yourself. You're not taking my word for it or any of the other pastor's word for it or a book that you've read. But you're in your Bible, you're in your word, so that when doctrine comes, you can sort out, is it from God or is it not? I couldn't even begin to go through all of the false doctrine, but we can go through the word of God together. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up all things into him who is the head of Christ. So this is as we operate with one another inside of the body, is we have to speak the truth in love. Sometimes people are all truth with no love. It's like a porcupine with a lot of powerful points, but not very approachable. You can have all the right truth, but if you don't have love, it's not going to be palatable. It's not going to go anywhere. Some people have tons of love. They're very genuine. They're very sincere. They're very, very loving, but they don't have any truth. And all that's going to lead is to people going astray. So we've got to speak the truth in love so that growth may happen with each other. So quick thing to write down in this is you've got to say it, you've got to say it straight, and you've got to say it lovingly. So in order for people to grow, that you're in relationship with believers, sometimes it means having a difficult conversation. You can't shy away from it. You've got to say it. First, you've got to commit to speaking the truth. And then you've got to say it straight. You can't be doing things like, well... I got something on my heart to talk to you about. And I've been praying about it. I want you to pray about it too. And Well, you know. No, I don't know. You just got to say it straight. You know, you just got to, what are we talking about here? Are we, are we talking about the Broncos or are you trying to confront me on something, right? So, so here it is. I'm going to just say it straight to you. Gonna, but then you got to say it lovingly. Got to take the time to say, what would it be like to be able to receive that? Sometimes we need to be on the giving end of speaking truth and love, but also we need to be on the receiving end of someone speaking the truth to us in love. Oh, this hurts, but I know they love me because they're telling me the truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That causes growth. For whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Last thing, all have a part to play. All have been given gifts. All of us are in this together, 
but all have a part to play. You have a part to play inside of the body of Christ. He's placed you with believers. And as you use your gifts to serve them, then the body of Christ is going to be as strong as it possibly can be. So for us tonight, what do we need to own? We need to own unity and see how important it is to the Lord. Say, God, I want to walk in a long-suffering manner. I want to walk in lowliness and gentleness. I want to keep the unity of peace. And then we need to own our gifts. What's, what's our gifts? I don't know. Well, start serving and you'll find out. The Holy Spirit will guide you. You already know what your gifts are? Well, own them and use them for God's glory. Own your part and say, you know what? I want to fulfill my part inside of, of this body. Maybe God is calling you to serve right here inside of Rocky Mountain Calvary. Go grab a volunteer application tonight. Fill it out. Man, we need you. Or do you care about people's safety and you want to keep them safe and you walk around to RMC and go, man, security could be a little bit better. God's calling you to the security team. Ladies, do you have a heart for our ladies in the fellowship and you want to come alongside of them? Sounds like God's calling you to women's ministry. Are you upset that there's not enough children's ministry? And you go in there and go, man, children's ministry could be better. Man, God's calling you to, to children's ministry. You know where this is going, don't you? You're like, man, the, Lord, the Lord's stern. But something's going to happen in your heart and your life as you say, you know, this isn't just their church. This is my church. I'm a part of this, and I'm ready for my gifts to, to be used. Maybe you used to serve. Maybe you used to come in a, in a mindset. And again, I'm not talking about necessarily that you have to fulfill a, a role formally. But remember those days when you came to church, whether it was here or somewhere else, and it was about being a blessing to others. It's like, man, who can I bless tonight? Holy Spirit, who do you, who do you want me to use? You, you, came, you came with your checkbook ready, an extra $20 in your pocket. I just want to bless somebody who's in need, another brother or sister in Christ, ready to pray, ready to give mercy. And then over time, it was like, well, nobody really talks to me. Nobody really cares for me. You know, they don't do the songs I like, those, those type of things. And to say, Lord, I'm going to own my place in the body. Application, approach a, a difficult relationship with gentleness and long-suffering. Do you have a difficult relationship right now? Approach it in gentleness and long-suffering. Start to serve while asking God to reveal your gifts and then commit yourself to the body of Christ. Let's stand together. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for the calling that you give us. It's not easy. We fall short. We admit that. We want to grow in you. We want to grow to maturity. I thank you so much for this body. I thank you for the unity that we enjoy. Lord, I thank you for the fact that there isn't pettiness here. What a beautiful thing from your spirit. May, may you help us to continue to walk in unity. Thank you for those that are serving, and God, would you remind us of the joy of serving. May we know our gifts. May we use those gifts inside of these walls and outside of these walls. Would you bless communion, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.